unpack and explore the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's been a while since I've been here. Uh, I've been on holidays with my family for the last few weeks. We went to BC. We had a really refreshing time, spending time in the Okanagan sun and the heat, and it's good to be back, though. As I said, we are working through the book of Ephesians, and, uh, and if, I, if I had remembered that I was going to be speaking on the ever-popular Wives Submit to Your Husbands passage, I may have gotten a guest speaker to tackle this subject today, but nonetheless, here we are. And what we see from this book of Ephesians, however, is that Paul has spent the, the, previous, the first three chapters explaining and unpacking this idea of how we relate to God. He uses the last three chapters, though, to explain and unpack this idea of how you and I relate to each other. Chapter, chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, which is the passage that we will be uh, exploring this morning, uh, really becomes the foundation that Paul uses to help develop this picture of what healthy, dynamic, Christ-centered husband and wife relationships look like. Ultimately, what healthy, dynamic, Christ-centered relationships look like within the entire church, actually. So let's read what he wrote. It says Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two be, will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for Paul's words here and the direction that it gives us in terms of how we can uh, honor each other, how we can uh, make you the, the, the head of our, of our marriages, the head of our church. And Lord, as we navigate this passage and, uh, and we recognize that there's some challenging teachings in here. And, and so Lord, as we, as we, um, as we discover those, those truths this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to, to receive what your spirit has to say to us, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, regardless of, where, regardless of who you are, we all enter into Scripture with a certain bias based on our cultural backgrounds, our generational contexts, our genders, and even our religious traditions. Some of these bias will impact how we interpret some of these passages like the one we just read. Now, I have to be clear here that some of these instructions from Paul have created a lot of tension within churches historically as well as enforce a hierarchy and patriarchy to impose authority within churches and marriages. That's not my intention today. In fact, what I'm hoping to do is that we might get a healthy picture of how husbands and wives and how men and women relate to each other within the church. Admittedly, 
Some of us within Thornhill Baptist Church likely come from a more complementarian perspective on male and female roles within the church and our marriages. And yet others would advocate for a more egalitarian perspective. So what do I mean by those two egalitarian and complementarian perspectives? Well, a complementarian perspective most traditionally held within the Christian church would affirm that, that there is something about women by virtue of their gender that should maybe prohibit them from holding a position of teaching and authority over men. But they would also argue that men have, that, sorry, they would also argue that women have roles to offer the church that men may not have as well. As a result, these roles that each gender have actually complement the other and complete the body according to their genders. Now, the egalitarian position would argue that Scripture is actually addressing specific issues at that specific time to those specific women, but actually teach us this transcendent and transferable principle about Christian living and discipleship that is transferable to both men and women. That if the issues that Paul is addressing were being done by men, he would, have, he would have said the exact same thing, he just would have addressed it to men. Now the egalitarian position also would argue that both men and women share equal responsibility and giftings within, that, within the church. And that gender isn't a determining factor when it comes to roles within the church and within marriages. And so depending on which bias you come from will likely influence how you read this particular passage from Ephesians 5. Now in my preparation for this message, I came across some quotes that I think capture how sometimes we view, mar- how we, how we view marriage relationships. So here's a couple of them. Never laugh at your wife's choices because you were one of them. If at first you don't succeed, Try doing it the way your wife told you to. Marriage is when a man loses his bachelor's degree and a woman gets her master's degree. Two golden rules to a happy marriage. One, the wife is always right. Two, when you feel like she's wrong, refer back to rule number one. There's another. Marriage marks the end of a love story and the start of a wrestling match. Never yell at each other, unless the house is on fire. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times, and always with the same person. And lastly, the goal in marriage is not to think alike, but to think together. Some interesting perspectives on marriage, isn't there? Some good insight as well, I think, at times. The goal in marriage isn't to think alike, but to think together. So how do we get there, though? I mean, it seems like a good destination. It seems like a good place for us to target, but how do we think together when we don't always see eye to eye? How do we think together in our marriages? How do we think together within our church? And it seems like this, worth, this worthwhile pursuit, yet anyone who has been married for any length of time knows that it's not always easy. Anyone who's been a part of a church for any length of time knows it's not always easy and that thinking together isn't always a strength for churches. As a husband, it's not always easy to love like Christ. My desires, my will, are so limited and self-focused that loving anyone besides myself seems impossible at times and because, frankly, I don't always want to do it. 
I like getting my way. I like it when things go the way that I think they should go. Now, admittedly, I have never been a wife. It doesn't look promising for me in the future either. But I would imagine that it's not easy for wives to submit to their husbands like Paul seems to be suggesting here in Ephesians 5. I know for myself, I'm not, an, I'm not always an easy person to get along with. Yet Paul seems to be suggesting here that wives need to be subordinate to their husbands. Now, I was reminded of, as I was reflecting on this passage, I was reminded of this story this week. There was a man who had worked all of his life and had saved all of his money, and, but he was a really cheap guy especially when it came to money. He, he was just very frugal. He loved money more than just about anything. And just before he died, he pulled his wife aside and said, now listen, when I die, I want you to take all of my money and I want you to, I want you to put it in my casket because I want to be buried with it because I think that I'll be able to take it with me in the afterlife. And so he got his wife to promise him with all of her heart that, that when he died, she would put all the money in the casket with him. So of course, after he died, he was stretched out in the casket and the wife was sitting there in her black dress next to her friend. When they finished the ceremony, just before the undertakers were getting ready to close the casket, the wife jumped up and said, wait a minute, wait. And she had a shoebox with her and she came over with the box and placed it beside her husband in, in the casket and the, underca- the undertakers locked the casket and rolled it away. Now her friend said, I hope you weren't crazy enough to put all that money in there with that, that cheap old man, were you? And the wife said, yeah, I, I promised him that I would, was to put that money in the casket with him. You mean to tell me you put every cent of his money in that casket with him? I sure did, said the wife. I got it all together, put it in my, put it in my account, and I wrote him a check. Now, is that submission? Is that the picture of submission that Paul was talking about here? Just do whatever the husband demands. Follow blindly. And there seems to be so many questions and gray areas to what Paul is talking about here. To what degree do we submit? And so as Paul transitions from chapters 1, 2, and 3, when he's talking about Jesus and the church, Paul begins to address this question now, so what? We're adopted into the kingdom of God, so what? We're made alive in Christ, so what? You are rooted and established in love. So what? You and I are members of one body. So what? And as this letter is being read aloud, as this, it's a circular letter, if you remember. And so it would, have been, it would have been sent to a church in Ephesus, and then it would have been passed around to different churches. And I imagine as this letter is being read to these different churches, that you could, I could imagine that there would be some rumbling in the back rows that some of these teachings that Paul is, is communicating have, are incredibly tough teachings. Some people likely would have struggled with what Paul was teaching here because so much of it was so radically countercultural. Teaching that would have caught the ears in the Jew, of the Jews and Gentiles and they would have been faced with the decision of whether following this was worthwhile or not. Where they were faced with these questions of how to reconcile their own experiences, how to reconcile their own biases with what Paul was now teaching them. Whether the exhortation that Paul was really making was doable, or whether they would just say, I, I reject it. And I suspect that for some, 
that as they listened to this revolutionary teaching on how to relate to God, that for some they would have said, that's too much, I'm out, I can't do it, I'm not willing to do it. And yet for others, that as Paul taught the Jews and Gentiles to be reconciled to one another, some of them likely would have said, you know, I, that's, I can't get past what they've done to me in the past, so I'm, I'm not submitting, I'm, I, I'm not doing it, I'm out. Now today, many people would see the scripture that was just read for us, and it would be argued that it's a deeply conservative picture of marriage and man and woman relationship. Yet, in the first century, as Paul is writing this, these words would have been interpreted in the exact opposite side. This would have actually been an incredibly liberal teaching of how men should treat their wives and how wives should interact with their husbands and how men and women should interact with each other. In that culture, wives were viewed as little more than people who produced legitimate children. Culturally, Greeks, Romans, Hebrews, the concept of marriage was was eroding because of the disposable nature women were viewed as. Women They refused to get married because of how easy it was for men to divorce them. In fact, in some Hebraic circles, if if your wife burnt your food, if it was under-seasoned, that was enough to qualify for divorce. Yet, in other circles, in other Hebraic circles, the, the reason for divorce would be your wife had to commit adultery. And so there was no consistency. There was, it, it, it was just, it, the, the standard always was different. But, to get it to, but for a husband to divorce his wife, all he needed to do was write up a certificate of divorce and give it to his wife in front of two witnesses and say, I now divorce you. And that was all that was required. And it was so simple. That it was so easy to do. The only caveat was that if, if the husband had paid a dowry payment for his wife, he would have to pay that back. But beyond that, it was pretty, there, was, there wasn't a lot of consequences for divorce. And so in, that, in the first century, a wife was viewed as more utilitarian than anything else. She was just a disposable aspe- asset for a man, just a slight upgrade over, over a slave. The value that was placed on women was so low that Jewish prayers reflected this position. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And we know how lowly the Jews thought of Gentiles and slaves. And it gives us a glimpse into how women were viewed in the first century. Suddenly this new perspective that Paul begins to present though says, hold up, wait a minute. If Jesus did all the things that I was just teaching in the first half of this letter, then it's probably going to impact your marriages. And here's how. First of all, the standard by which you live your life is going to be elevated. The manner in which you treat other people is going to be elevated, especially with your wife. All the things that Jesus did, his sacrifice, his love, that needs to be part of who you are now. It needs to be a part of how you treat and interact with everyone, especially your spouse. For many of us, as we look at that passage, often we get stuck on verse 24, that wives submit to your husbands. And it seems uncomfortable. And culture rejects that kind of message today. The reality is, though, is that this passage, I think, demands a higher calling for the men of Ephesus because of the oppression that the women in that context face, too. 
Paul is saying to the guys in Ephesus, he said, guys, something's, they got to change here, boys. There needs to be a massive shift in how you guys are treating women, especially your wives. And Paul says in verse 25 to 28, he says this. This is how you do it, guys. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now the word that Paul uses here for the word love throughout this passage is the the word agape, love. This is the type of love that Jesus has for humanity. Not a friendship love, not an emotional love, but a deep, intimate, sacrificial, servant-hearted, humble, unrelenting love. A deep, intimate, sacrificial, servant-hearted, humble, unrelenting love. That's what agape love is. Now, considering most women in that time were viewed as fairly disposable, this is a huge shift from the way wives were treated then. The idea that men would agape love their wives, like Christ agape loves the church, would have been an enormous contrast to what culture affirmed in the first century. To give you an idea of just how foreign, how unusual this, this, this um, call is, this is actually the first recorded historical text in, in, in the ancient world where we see men called to, be, to agape love their wives. This love that transcends the cultural norms of the day. It wasn't a, a, a normal thing. And yet Paul says, make this a normal thing. This wasn't a conservative teaching. But instead it's this outlandish, outrageous, extravagant expression of love that we've seen modeled through Jesus. And now Paul is saying, live that type of love out in your marriages. Love with the kind of love that we see modeled by Jesus. It's when we live out those characteristics of Christ that we actually fulfill what we were intended to do and to be. Now the reality is, is that it's not just a husband's responsibility or a wife's responsibility to live out Christ-likeness, is it? that we're all called to live like Christ. We're all called to agape love one another. Where the fault line of Christ-likeness isn't separated by gender or marital status. Instead, we're all called and implored to live like Jesus. Male and female, married and single, young and old. Christ-likeness isn't a male goal or a female goal. It's actually a humanity goal. Where each of us, as we pursue Christ, as the head of the church, everything that we do begins to come out of that. How we live our lives. How we interact with each other. How we engage with the world. And one of the ways that we do that, Paul says, is to submit to one another. This is our our ability to submit. Christ models this idea of submission to us in Philippians 2. When Paul writes, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider Equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. But taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
where we are called to submit to one another because Jesus did it first. Dying to ourselves. Dying to our desires. Dying to our will. Submission is an act that is expressed mutually and voluntarily that actually helps us to be less self-centered and allows us to consider the perspective of other people. It ultimately helps us to become more like Jesus, which is always the goal for us. Many people think that submission is actually an act of weakness, where it's actually confused with oppression, which is probably, which in terms of oppression, this is pro- that's probably a more accurate picture of what was taking place in the first century amongst men and women during that time, where women were being oppressed more, more than anything else. Submission, though, is actually the opposite of weakness, where instead submission is a posture of strength, where we willingly open our hearts to others and set aside what we want for the benefit of others and for the benefit of God's kingdom purposes in the same way that Jesus did. The word that Paul uses here for submission is the Greek word huputasso. And it actually has two different meanings depending on the context that it's used. In one context, in the military, it could be the kind of submission that we see when a, when a general gives a direction to a soldier. And the soldier arranges themselves according to the commands given to them by the general. Now the other is in the non-military context. Where submission is a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility for someone, and carrying a burden for someone. I think this word, though, as, if, as we begin to understand what, it, what, he, what Paul is saying here, helps us, to, helps us to understand that there's actually two different contexts in which submission can be applied. One is in terms of positional authority, and the other is in relational authority. Positional authority and relational authority. Positional authority is when someone's post- positional stature is higher than yours. So again, using the example of the military, a general and a private, For us, maybe it's the government or police or your boss. They each have a higher position or status than most of us because governmentally, legally, corporately, they have more authority than we do. So when governments make bylaws like wearing masks in all public places, we may not all agree with it. Or when HR makes a decision that seems to make zero sense, but we fall in line because we have because we submit to it because they actually have a higher level of authority over us we may do it begrudgingly but we do it still because they have positional authority over us relational authority though comes out of a desire to voluntarily release control of what we of of what we might want and choose instead to place the needs and desires of someone else ahead of our own Positional authority, though, is giving authority to someone because of how they act, how they live, and how they treat others, and including ourselves. Relational authority then identifies the character of someone and says, you know, I, I can get behind what they're doing. I can get behind who they are because I, I choose to submit to that person over there based on, because I can see their character. I can see that the way that they live their life. This seems to be more consistent with what Paul Paul's message of equality and unity as we see it throughout this letter seems to be. Where Paul seems to be very intentional about making sure he avoids creating divisions culturally or economically. Where the main thrust of this letter seems to be focused on equality and unity within the body. This seems to be 
this idea that Paul is beginning to advocate for us. Men, how do you make sure that you have positional authority over your wives? Wives, how do you have positional authority with your husbands? Love your spouse in such a way that you have relational authority and that they will be excited to submit because it's easy. Wives will know that you have the interest of Christ first and then their interest next. Husbands in Ephesus, when you do that, when you have relational authority, you won't need to have positional authority over your wife because everyone follows kindness. Your wife will be drawn to your love when you have a, because of the way that you live it. The reality is, is that we all gravitate towards people that are joyful, that are peaceful, that are patient, that are good, that are faithful, that are self-controlled. People that reflect Jesus. People, are gravi- people gravitate towards that type of, pe- that type of person. And as, we do, and, as, and as you live those characteristics out, you begin to gain relational uh, relational authority in people's lives. See, when we earn relational authority in each other's lives, when we root ourselves in Christ-likeness, our lives reflect the glory of God. And husbands and wives actually become a beautiful expression of how the body of Christ relates to Jesus Christ too. So I want to offer four ways that we as the church, that husbands and wives, that singles, teenagers, elderly, whomever it is, how we can begin to deepen our relational authority in people's lives. One, put Christ first. Two, understand your role as an influencer in each other's lives. Three, let go of control. And four, learn from each other. So put Christ first. Regardless of whether you read this passage from Paul in Ephesians 5 from a complementarian perspective, or an egalitarian perspective, we all carry an expectation that Christ is the head of the church and that each of us are viewed equally in the eyes of God, that God has made man and woman in his image and that we are expected to pursue the will of Christ. But a healthy posture for all of us is to be in a posture of openness to what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Regardless of whether you are married or single, we are all called to submit to the will of Christ, to die to ourselves and to ensure that Christ is at the forefront of all of our relationships, to set aside what we want, release control, and allow Jesus to work in us and through us. Some of the best advice I was given as a young adult when I first started dating was this, love Jesus more than your spouse. I think that's a really healthy posture of living. When we love Jesus ahead of everyone else, and out of that, the fruit will be revealed. So put Christ first. Two, understand your role. Each of us has the opportunity to be an influencer in each other's lives. We can be a positive influence or we can be a negative one. Husbands, we have an opportunity to be the presence of Christ in our wives and families' lives. Christ is not a tyrant. Some of us might be leading our families and marriages like that. That's not how Christ leads the church. And some of us may actually need to repent and ask for forgiveness and start a healing process within your marriage. Relationships weren't intended to be oppressive. They were meant to be opportunities to help each other discover Jesus in his kingdom. So put Christ first, 
Understand your role as an influencer in people's lives. Thirdly, let go of control. As much as we often want people to change and do the things that we want, sometimes, surprisingly, people don't. Sometimes, shockingly, my wife and kids don't do what I want them to do. And I have to be okay with the reality that the only person that I can really control is who? Myself. All I can do is model for them at times an example of Christ and believe that by modeling Jesus, that they might see, that others might see what it means to follow Jesus as well and walk in that reality. One of the challenges with submission is that so many of us, including myself, have a need to control others, to control our situations, to control our circumstances. Submission, though, it releases control over others. And instead of us being the one to shape and direct people, we trust that it's the Holy Spirit doing it instead. See, the Holy Spirit was given to us to do the things that we're unable to do and unwilling to do. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit was given to us to do the things that we are unable to do and unwilling to do. Trust that the Holy Spirit will work in people's lives, in your family's lives, in your friends' lives, in your kids' lives. According to, trust that He'll work in those people's lives the way, it needs, that, the way he, it needs to happen according to God's timing. Not ours, but God's. So put Christ first. Understand your role as an influencer in people's lives. Let go of control. And lastly, learn from each other. As Paul is writing this letter, historically, women didn't have the same educational advantages as men. That was just, a, that was just part of the, the DNA of that culture. As a result, women would often become very susceptible to being deceived by, adult, by, by false teachings and false doctrines. We see this actually, Paul addressing this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, and, 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 and uh, communicates that it's important that you don't allow false teachers to, to influence the church. What they would do if these false teachers is they would target women because of their uneducation. Paul, though, instructs instruction for women to submit is actually, given, is, actually, is actually giving the women in the church instruction on how they can posture themselves to be better learners how they can actually prevent themselves from being deceived by these false teachers. Men at that point in the first century were naturally at, an, at a disadvantage, or let me say that again, men were naturally at an advantage to discern some of these false teachings because of their education. They were, they were able to think more critically because their, their, their academic allowed them to do that. Paul saying, wives, your husbands can be a great resource for you to help you discover what it means to follow Jesus so that you're not distracted by these false teachings, so you're not deceived by these, these false doctrines. Not because men are superior than you, but because men have, had a, have ha, actually had an opportunity that you haven't had. This is, an, this is a way that you can, you can grow. This is a way that you can become a closer disciple of Jesus. Your husband actually may have something to offer that will actually protect you from the deceptions that exist around you. That, that by submitting to your husband's instruction, that will actually help you to live out the purpose Christ has for you. One of the ways that we can do that today is to invite our spouse into a conversation of our own spiritual growth where we can begin to ask questions like, 
where do you think that I could grow to be more like Jesus? Are there other blind spots that you see in me that, that you could speak into? Or what are some ways that, that help you to follow Jesus more intimately? Now the intention behind these questions is to create space to provide opportunities for mutual spiritual growth. Whether you're married or not, whether you're male or female, you should learn. Ask questions. And after those questions are answered, ask secondary questions. And after those questions are asked, answered, ask follow-up questions beyond that. And what, you, what happens when we do that, when we ask questions, we take the depth of relationships to a, to a whole different level. We begin to create so much more depth. And you begin to actually earn credibility within your relationship because what you've done now is you've actually begun to invite people into your life to speak into it. You've begun to invite people to speak into who you are as a person, how you could actually grow. You're communicating a desire to hear from them. What we're doing is we're making ourselves vulnerable. We're no longer guarding ourselves. We're no longer hiding our, turning our back to them. But we're saying, I'm just giving you an opportunity to speak into my life. Put Christ first. Understand our role as influencers in people's, in, understand your role as an influencer in people's lives. Let go of control and learn from each other. Lord, thanks for today. Thank you for these words. Lord, we desire to put you first. We desire to hear your voice. And Lord, we, we make ourselves available and say, God, we just want to put you first. And in our marriages, in our relationships, in our church, Jesus, we pray that you would be front and foremost. God, we recognize that we do have a role in influencing people's lives. But the challenge, of course, is to let go of control so that you can do what you need to do in people's lives too, in, our, in ourselves. God, I pray that you would give us the humility to, to, and the courage to, to learn from each other to provide space for people to speak into our lives. God, we desire to, to understand what it means to, to submit to one another, to have relational authority. Because we know that, that, that you are the ultimate authority. And so we, we claim that truth as, as, as ours. And we pray that we'd be able to do whatever it takes to be able to earn relational authority so that we can, so we can continue to point people towards you, Jesus. Amen.